Three questions before I fire you up with another great interview. First, if you need a video for your site to help increase conversions and make more sales, who do you turn to? Revolution Productions. Their videos make it easy for customers to understand your product. And even though they're inexpensive, Revolution Productions uses animation techniques and high-quality video production values to tell a compelling story. And Revolution Productions is trusted by SendGrid, SnapEngage, Freelancer, and others. Go to revolution-productions.com. Next, did you know that adding a phone number from grasshopper.com to your site can increase your sales? Well, Less Accounting found that sales grew when they added a Grasshopper phone number to their site. Seeing a phone number for help makes people feel safe. Flower AB tested having a phone number on their site from Grasshopper and not having one from Grasshopper. Look at how much impact it had. Try it on your site. Go to grasshopper.com. Finally, will you trust me if I tell you that the lawyer that entrepreneurs should use is Scott Edward Walker of Walker Corporate Law? Well, what if Jason Calacanis, Neil Patel, and these founders tell you that they recommend Scott Edward Walker of Walker Corporate Law? Well, you don't have to take our word for it. If you're a startup founder who's looking for a lawyer, put a call in to Walker Corporate Law and talk to them. You'll know for yourself. WalkerCorporateLaw.com. All right, let's get started. Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy.com, home of the ambitious upstart and home of over 700 interviews with proven entrepreneurs who come here to tell you their stories so that you can learn from them and build your own success story. And today, in fact, before I even announce this interview, I've got to do a standing ovation over here. Hang on a second. Where's the camera? There's a camera. This standing ovation doesn't work here. But man, Ryan, do you deserve it. Man, do you deserve it. Thank you, Andrew. Glad this, to be here. Wow. Almost two years since we did this interview. And last time I did an interview with Ryan Alice, he had a wristband on. This time I want to ask and answer this question in this interview. How does a wristband help a founder build a $169 million company? Ryan Alice is the co-founder of iContact, a provider of email marketing tools for small businesses, and a company that was recently sold for $169 million to Vocus. Here's a quote that I pulled from the last time that I interviewed him. Quote, he says, uh, we incorporated in July 03, lived in the office, slept on futons, cooked on a George Foreman grill, did whatever we had to do to keep expenses low while we built up revenue and customers and improved the product. Now, those are the challenges of a startup. And man, did he get past them. It was inspiring to hear, Ryan, how you did get past them. In this interview, I want to go to the next level. What happens when you get past the challenges of a startup and have to build a bigger and bigger and bigger company? I mean, you got into the tens of millions of dollars. And the second thing is that I'd like to talk about is the mindset. That wristband did something to you, and it's part of a way of thinking of the world that I want to learn from you about. So first of all, thanks for doing this interview. Uh, especially so soon after getting acquired. I know that's that usually after getting acquired, you want to take a step back and, and not do media. And I appreciate you coming here and doing this interview. And second, for anyone who doesn't, who didn't see that wristband, can you explain what it was? What was on your wrist? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll show it to you now because I still have it right here. And I had two wristbands on uh, two years ago. And one said, make poverty history, uh, which is a passion of mine to use business and entrepreneurship to create sustainable economic growth in the developing world. And that's something I hope to pursue for the next three or four decades ahead. The other wristband said 100 million in 2012, eye contact. Um, and that to me was a personal goal to either get to 100 million in revenue or, or get acquired for north of 100 million uh, this year in 2012. We started the business uh, in 2003, and you're right, we did everything we could to keep expenses low, sleeping on futons, eating lots of ramen noodles, um, to, as we built up eye contact over the years to 70,000 customers, uh, a little over 47 million in annual revenue, um, and over a million users in email marketing and social media marketing. And so it was a great adventure, uh, but certainly having two primary life goals uh, on your wrist uh, is a very visible way of focusing your efforts on achieving them. So let's let's learn about what about how you come up with the goals and then how it helps you to 
to get there to I mean, how how wearing them on your wrist and being so open about it gets you there. Um, so first, how did you pull $100 million? Where did that come from? Well, um, let, let me do it in the other way. And, and let me talk about the process first, and because I think okay. that'll actually answer the, the second question of how do you get the specific goal. So, you know, I learned a, a process from, you know, a book almost everyone's read, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, once a year at minimum, take, and what I do is the last five days of every year. So from December 26th to December 31st every year, I don't work. Um, I generally am uh, with my, my parents' house in Florida. And I make sure I take some time to reflect, to write a reflection on what I did that year, uh, what I achieved on my goals, what I did not achieve on my goals. And I always like to hit about 50% of my goals. If I'm hitting more than 50%, then, then my goals aren't ambitious enough. Um, and I go through the process of actually writing down what I want to achieve in the year ahead. Um, and they tend to be about 10 goals uh, per year, and then maybe one or two big ones. And so I do it on a 12-month period. So I have a one-year goal set of goals, uh, a set of goal for five years, and then a set of sort of lifetime goals. Um, and so within those three categories, every year I update that list. And I ensure that uh, what I'm doing on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis ends up aligning toward the primary goals I want to achieve that year and the longer-term lifetime goals. So how do you – well, first of all, how do you come up with the, with the list of goals? The thing is that when I sit down, I'm not – well, in fact – I'm having a hard time coming up with the right questions here. I'm really excited to be doing this interview, and it's showing in my voice. I should be so much more professional and so much more composed than I am right now. But can you give me an example of what's on the list? What kind of things would you have on the list beyond building a $100 million company by 2012? Sure. So it might be travel countries that I want to visit that year. Mm -hmm. Um, It'd be um, personal traits and values that I want to uh, sort of build into my character. Uh, over time and work on improving. Um, it might be uh, experiences. Uh, for example, last year, one of my goals was to go d- skydiving for the first time and, mm-hmm. and check that off the list. Um, and oftentimes, uh, it sometimes might be educational. Um, and, and oftentimes, many are within the realm of, of business uh, and entrepreneurship. And um, in terms of the process of setting the goals, you have those categories, you know, family, personal, experiential, educational, uh, and professional and business, and then you put in a couple goals for each, um, and, and it really doesn't take that long. It really takes maybe a couple hours to do at most um, mm-hmm. every, every year. Um, and then you, I have a personal wiki, which is a password-protected sort of like Wikipedia just for me, um, and I keep my you know goals going all the way back to 2002 uh, when I was 18 to the present by year, and then every couple, two times a week, I go in and, and sort of do a journal update to sort of see how I'm progressing each week and whatever I'm learning. So that's the process I go through and the categories I have for the goals. You know, so one of the things that happens to me when I set goals like that is there will be one thing on there like run a marathon every quarter and then I'll get to maybe March, maybe April and realize that I'm not anywhere near running a marathon and I'll be afraid to look at all the goals and I'll ignore them, you know, because I don't want to feel like a loser. I don't want to feel like a failure. And then by the by, the mid, middle of the year, about July, I'll have forgotten completely about the list, and then I'll reevaluate it in December. Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever feel like that? Well, here's the secret uh, to success: you have to be willing to fail enough times to figure out how to how to succeed. Okay. Um, so, for me, with with goals, um, the secret with goals is if you're hitting seventy five percent of your goals, your goals aren't ambitious enough, and most people feel bad when they don't hit a goal. Um, I feel bad when I'm hitting too many of them, as ironic as that sounds. And so you want your goals to be sufficiently ambitious uh, that they're hard to get to. You know, I, I remember we chatted last time about a goal I set when I was 16 to build a company to a million dollars in sales by the time I turned 21. And I told you I missed that goal by 18 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? I was 21 years old in 18 days and I contact got to $1 million in sales. Um, and that enabled me to do everything that came after. Um, and so you want to have ambitious goals. And I, I had—I actually did have a goal to run a marathon in 2010. Um, and I was all set to run one in April, and then I got sick. And so I signed up for a December uh, marathon and ended up spraining my ankle and only finished a half marathon. 
Um, and so sometimes you miss your goals and that's okay. And you just have to be, you have to understand that the best way to succeed is to fail sufficiently. And I think Edison failed 5,000 times in trying to come up with a filament before he came up with a successful incandescent light bulb. And keeping that mindset in place is critical to long-term success. I see. So I might maybe in July realize that I haven't run a single marathon, even though I promised myself I'd run four and say, ah, goal setting just doesn't work. I, or just ignore it completely. You'd say, ah, you know what? That's part of the 50% that I'm not going to get done. It means that I'm setting, that I'm setting the right kind of goals. Let's adjust. And then you will adjust throughout the year. You never adjust your goals. Your goals are locked for the entire year. Okay. Right? You have to judge yourself against your original projection. Um, but you, you set a goal, you set a series of goals and maybe 10, and then you try to do five or six. Um, and, and that's how I do it anyway. Okay. All right. So goal setting is one. Re, uh, and we talked about how you do it. What else? What about reading books? You're someone who just loves to learn. I looked past, uh, I, I read our the transcript of our past conversation, and you kept referring to books and how they change your life right from an early age. How do you read books different, do you think, than the average person might be reading might be reading books who's not getting as much out of them as you are? Well, I think um, the successful entrepreneur is often a voracious reader. The successful person is often a voracious reader. Um, and for me, it was the formative years of my life where my, my teenage years where I really was exposed to through my parents some really important books and I remember mentioning to you Think and Grow Rich, Rich Dad Poor Dad, How to Win Friends and Influence People um, and then there's you know some others that really inspired me um, but those were the three that really opened my mind to personal development and personal finance which ended up being critical to my later growth and success. Um, I read I don't read you know that much more Maybe I read two books a month. It's not that much. Um, but, you know, I don't watch TV. Um, I might watch a total of a half an hour of TV per month. I don't even have, I don't have cable. I don't have an antenna. So if I want to watch TV, I have to go out to watch TV. And I think that is an important characteristic I find in other similarly uh, ambitious people that they focus their time uh, and their efforts on doing the things they love and what they're passionate about. And, and not being sort of sedative in one place, watching information come to them. You mentioned education beyond reading books. Where else are you learning? Um, I mean, you learn every day, right? You learn through the mentors and the people in your life. Um, I'm actually considering uh, additional schooling and education. I dropped out of UNC in order to build eye contact, so I may go get a graduate school degree some point in the next few years. Um, but I think that the most important place you learn from is from the primary two or three mentors in your life. Um, and I try to surround myself and find people that are 10 or 15 years ahead of where I am that I can learn from and, and go out and just simply model from them and learn from them. How do you get those people to give you so much of themselves? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. You know, I, I, um, gen in, in my case, um, they were either the people that I hired as my, uh, C-level executives. Mm -hmm or they were the folks that invested in eye contact, um, either as equity investors, angel investors, um, or as advisors. Um, and so I think, it's, I think it's important to find people that are, have already achieved what you want to achieve and bring them into your life. Um, but in order to get the level of uh, collaboration, you often need to align economic interests in some way by allowing them to invest in your firm or by potentially paying them on a monthly basis for their advice. Um, and what I found is that by having uh, a CFO who was, you know, in his mid to late 40s when we hired him, had already been CFO of a company that exited for 500 million plus dollars uh, about 10 years ago. By having him as a mentor, um, by having, you know, his name is Tim Oakley, our CFO. By having a guy named Buck Goldstein as a mentor who had been a venture capitalist, who had been a public company CEO. Um, by having Jit Sinha from JMI Equity and Carter Griffin from Updata Partners. You know, these were the people, along with my senior team, that really gave me the knowledge I needed to execute and build eye contact into a successful company. Do you have an example of that? Of Well, actually, what I'm looking for is this. I think I've got an example. 2006, you hired uh, the CFO, Tim, right? Yeah. And he helped you raise half a million dollars in funding, and you used that uh, to generate, or excuse me, to buy pay-per-click ads on Google. So I can see how these guys help you. But what I've noticed is that I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs who have 
good CFOs who have great investors, but they don't tap them for information, for knowledge the way that you do. How do you do it? Is there some formal way that you do it to make sure that you're getting the most out of them instead of doing what most people do, which seems to be um, just give the investors as little or as much as you have to and then back get them to back away so that you can focus on your work? What do you do to make sure that you're learning from them and growing? Well, I think the key is, is all is in the selection of the people and then ensuring that there's an ongoing process for you to spend a lot of time with them, to learn from them. Um, there are different types of investors. There are investors who don't really know all that much about operating a company, operations of a company, um, and and then they're inv and they're not that value add, and you really just sort of want their money and then not to talk with them again. And then there are investors like the ones we were fortunate enough to attract that not only provided, you know, Five hundred thousand, five hundred. You raised a total of fifty-three million dollars over the last five years at Eye Contact. Uh, not only provided money, but actually provided you know strategic advice. And every six weeks, we would have a board meeting um, or a board call, and I would get interaction on a formal basis. And then I set up a monthly call with our uh, major investors from JMI Equity to make sure I was getting the feedback and the mentorship and guidance that I wanted to ensure that I got. And then on the CFO standpoint. His office was next to mine, and so we would see each other every day. And then some uh, a tactical thing that we did with our senior leadership team, because sometimes teams get uh, they're they're bad at communicating. We had a daily 9:46 a.m. huddle where we got together for 10 minutes and just shared what are you doing today, what problems are you trying to solve, and that helped us learn from each other very rapidly. Why 9:46? Why not 9:45? Well, there's uh, you want it to be a, an abnormal time so people aren't late. If, if, it's an, if it's a normal time, people are four minutes late. If it's an abnormal time, then people are right on time. Because they feel like there must be a reason why Ryan picked 946. I better go and see what that reason is. You got it. All right. And all you do there is just talk about what are you guys up to today? What, you plan, what are your plans for the day? That's as informal as it is. Yep. What's your schedule? And are you, have you, are you hitting any roadblocks? Before I get into the rest of this, the, the way that you work, you mentioned you raised $53 million, right? right you were basically at cash flow break even you had a, a you had a business that from what i could tell didn't need that much money did you raise that money to take some cash off the table back then oh absolutely and our, our we raised three rounds of capital in mm -hmm. 2006 we raised five hundred thousand dollars from idea fund partners in durham that was our steep round in two and we were we had about uh, a million and a half in revenue per year in, when we raised that money. Um, in 2007, we had quadrupled to about four or five million at the time. We raised uh, $5 million from Updata Partners uh, in Reston, Virginia as our Series A. And then we used that to build out our senior management team and scale to $40 million in annual revenue. And then we raised a $40 million round of funding in our Series B from JMI Equity in, in August 2010. All along the way, in our Series A and our Series B, we were able to sell some of our personal shares. And so the actual amount that went to the balance sheet of the company uh, was more like $30 million. We, we had some amount that went uh, was our personal shares that we were selling to the investors. You mentioned Napoleon Hill earlier. One of the things that he talks about is the need to be all in, to take, to take a risk that's so big that you have to succeed, or if you don't succeed, you fail completely. Remember, I think he talked about uh, Cortez who burned the ships after he landed. You didn't do that. Why not? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the role of the entrepreneur is to constantly uh, minimize risk, as ironically as that sounds. Your goal mm -hmm. is to arrange land, labor, capital, entrepreneurial ability to create a valley of outputs that's greater than the sum of the inputs and to hopefully create jobs and get back to the community and help improve great uh, you know great experience for your customers while you're doing it um, and so I don't think uh, it's about all or nothing I think it's about building up value for your customers creating a great work experience for your employees creating value in your community and over time uh, prudently assessing your situation and taking uh, small amounts of risk in order to reinvest in scalability and growth so I don't think it's an all-or-nothing thing certainly after the first year or two when you've gotten to some revenue generation how did your life change after you got after you took some money off the table? Well, um, you know, I think there's a sense of, uh, for me, the purpose of money 
is only that it enables me to do good things. It enables me to invest in other companies. It enables me to invest in companies in Africa, which is a passion of mine. Um, I don't really have, I'm not a material person. I don't care much for material goods. Um, I think the value as an entrepreneur of having a million dollars in your bank account, for example, is that it does allow you to think longer term and to think bigger. And so I do encourage other entrepreneurs, if they have the opportunity to take some chips off the table when they raise their second or third or fourth round of funding, to do it. Because it does allow you to de-risk a little bit um, and, and focus on the longer term value creation. What do you mean? Do you have an example of a risk that you were able to take because it, you wouldn't be, you, because you took some risk off the table? Absolutely. Um, so in 2007, uh, iContact raised about $5.35 million from Updata Partners, and my co-founder and I were able to take some chips off the table, and we built the company up over the number of years, and then in 2010, we raised $40 million. We would have never gone out. When, when, you, when you raise $40 million of capital, um, the risk profile goes up. You might say, oh, well, you have more money in your balance sheet. That means that the risk is lower. The reality is, is that you have now taken $40 million of capital that is senior in the capital structure to all the common shareholders, uh, only below the debt. Um, and so he if said, you uh, the connection went down only below the debt. Million, you get, right, uh, you, you end up getting nothing. Um, can, you, can you repeat that? If it, I, I missed it just because the connection was going down a little bit as you were saying it. Absolutely. Thanks. Basically, you know, what we were when we raised forty million dollars in, in Series B preferred security, which is how you do venture capital, that forty million dollars is now senior in the capitalization structure, which means above um, all of the common shareholders, which is me, my co-founder, all of the employees. And so if you don't sell for more than forty million dollars, you get nothing, right? And we would have but you needed that capital in order to go out and really take chances and and really go big in the market. And we wanted to go big or we wanted to go home, but we didn't want to be foolish about it. And so we took some chips off the table, which allowed us to think long-term and get the capital we needed to succeed. I see. What about peers? You talked about going to mentors. In fact, even as I read your, your backstory, I, heard, I read about who you talked to about structuring your company when you first launched it. And there were always these smarter people around you who you're turning to for advice. What about peers, other entrepreneurs who you can have conversations with about how to structure your debt or, or whether to take on uh, another round? Who do you talk to and how do you do it? Well, I found a few groups of um, three groups to be particularly helpful. I joined EO, which is Entrepreneurs Organization in 2005, which is a group of entrepreneurs under 40 with more than a million dollars in annual revenue. Very helpful to me. I was in a forum with seven other individuals, all of whom were peers, and I learned a lot from them. Um, I, secondarily, there's an organization uh, called Young Presidents Organization, YPO, where it's a group of peers under 50 that have more than $10 million in annual sales usually. Um, and that is a group I've just recently joined and has been, a, 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 I think, a, will be a good peer group in the future. And then finally, I've been part of a, a network you're probably familiar with of uh, entrepreneurs called Summit Series. And through that, I've met a number of other entrepreneurs, many my own age, that have built companies into the tens of millions of dollars and have been able to create a network of folks that I can call on for advice anytime. So EO is the one that you've been a part of the longest. Do you have any, an example of something that you were able to do because of the conversations that you had in EO that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? Well, I mean, it, it, as you probably know, half of the value EO is, is on the personal side, being able to talk with people in a confidential form and environment about uh, what you're going through, whether it be a, a divorce or a marriage or a new child, and, and understand uh, what you should do so that you can focus your on your business efforts and hopefully take care of your personal life. On the business side, you know, I remember a forum where we had a company coming to us that had made an offer to buy our company a couple of years ago, buy eye contact, and I took it to the forum and I said, is this something I should do? Is this not something I should do? And I ended up getting some very valuable advice. And we ultimately uh, decided that we weren't going to go down that path. And so having that network of peers, um, you know, of entrepreneurs that have been there before, you know, are, are just as important as having a network of mentors that, that have been there before. You want people not only that, that were there 10 years ago, but people who are in the arena whose faces are marred with dust today as well in your group. 
you know, I wish when I was building Bradford and Reed that I was a part of a group like that because there's so much that in retrospect, I didn't know. I didn't, for example, know the importance of diversifying your revenue. I thought, well, if I have a few customers and I can take better care of them and really build relationships with them, I didn't recognize, well, if you have a few customers, then um, if if one of them goes down, you've lost a significant portion of your revenue. I didn't recognize that until I had an audited financial statement where they where they put that down as a risk, where I thought it was it was one of the good decisions that we made in the business. I didn't recognize when sales were going down, I was comparing myself constantly to sales at their height and thinking I'm a failure or this company's a failure instead of realizing, wait, take a step back. If you look at this as it is, you realize that there's solid revenue there. And anyway, there are lots of little things like that that today I can go back and say, oh, I, I was not that smart. I made mistakes that if I was around other people, I think I could have had it fleshed out. I just didn't. I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who was thinking about business the way I was. I thought I was the only one who was ambitious the way that I was, the only one who was impatient the way that I was, and I didn't realize that there are other entrepreneurs like that. You find that too? I see you're smiling as you're saying that. Yeah. But there aren't a lot of entrepreneurs like you, Ryan, right? From an early age, you were able to build up not just a company that raised money from a seed fund, but a company that was generating solid revenue, a company that was going somewhere, a company that kept building up customers. You weren't like like a lot of the people who we read about on TechCrunch. You weren't like a lot of people who you might have gone to school with. Where did you find those people who made you feel like this is okay to think this way? Well, building a company is a lonely journey at times. Um, and you have to have a lot of self-confidence in yourself. And you certainly have to have the perseverance to get through tough times. Um, you know, at the end of the day, while... You know, there weren't that many folks who were in their 20s building companies at the scale that iContact has reached. Um, there are many, many people out there um, that are, are often 40 or 45 or 50. And if you're able to get into those networks and, and really surround yourself with people 10 to 15 years your senior, if you're a younger entrepreneur, you can often get a network of peers and mentors that have been there and done that. And so, you know, there are thousands and thousands of public company CEOs uh, in, in the United States alone and uh, probably tens of thousands that have, that have done it over the years. And so they are out there in every community. It's just up to you to find them and to bring them into your peer group. You said um, it's lonely to be an entrepreneur. And I've heard several entrepreneurs, both in my audience and in interviews, say that it's lonely to be an entrepreneur. I want to understand that because I have to say I never felt lonely like an entrepreneur. I felt like there were too many people around, too many customers, not too many customers, but you know, a lot of customers, too many people who were vying for my attention. And what I did feel was scared a lot and do still, frankly, now I feel scared a lot, even though things are fine. Nothing's ever going to go bad. But I feel like what if I, what if I screw up in an interview and I say the wrong thing? What if I admit that I'm nervous in an interview that should be routine and people see through whatever exterior I put up? Um, what if my customers all disappear tomorrow? You know, scary, but I don't understand lonely. Can you help me understand it? Maybe I'll identify with it once I really, once I really understand what, what do you mean by lonely? How, where do, when do you feel lonely? How do you feel? Well, I think the, uh, in, in a perfect world, as an entrepreneur, you would always have spent sufficient time identifying the next mentor, uh, the next peer group that can help you get to the, the next platform for you to jump off of, the next you know, shoulders upon which you can see from. Um, I think something I, I, I speak about often having fortune to find a number of mentors, but something in hindsight that I wish I would have spent more time on is, is actually finding people proactively before I needed them as opposed to after I needed them um, who were one or two steps ahead. Um, and while I found an EO, a great group of, of individuals who had built companies between, say, one and 25 million in annual revenue, once we got to sort of the 25 million in annual revenue mark, I didn't find as many local mentors that I could connect with. And so, you know, there's this combination of, you know, are there, I, I, I hadn't really found uh, too many people who I who could relate to, who I could gain advice from. And there certainly weren't as many that were, you know, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. And so while I was able to find some older mentors, I, I couldn't find a lot of people uh, I could relate to on a human peer, you know, mid to late 20s, young entrepreneur basis. And I was often dealing with difficult decisions uh, in challenging times that 
I went to my group uh, for advice on, but ultimately had to make the final decision on. And so I, I think it is true to say that it can be lonely at the top, um, oftentimes because people are afraid to talk to you if you're at the top. Um, and um, Who's afraid you know, to talk to you when you're at the top? Oftentimes your mem members of your uh, company, oftentimes your employees won't tell you what they really think uh, because of fear out of what you, how you might interpret. For example? Um, well, I mean, I can't tell you examples of not of something that didn't exist, but there were certainly many times, I'm sure, where things uh, were happening, where trends were occurring in the business, where they should have been brought to my attention, but uh, perhaps an employee that was a few levels down in our organizational hierarchy, you know, didn't want to bring it up to my attention uh, for fear of how I would react. And so, you know, I did my best to build personal and, and connected relationships with a lot of folks at the company, but certainly there is this executive amplitude or leader's amplitude where people are afraid to come to you and tell you things. And so you just have to proactively reach out and be extremely friendly and do skip level meetings and things like that. You mentioned earlier having difficult decisions that you have to make on your own. Like what? Uh, um, What's the toughest decision that you felt like you had to make and it was just you? Or the toughest decision in general? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, um, in 2010, April, sorry, April of 2000, November of 2010, we decided that we would launch a free version of Eye Contact um, in response to some of the competition in the marketplace, having done that successfully. And, um, Ultimately, that was my decision. I went to the board. I advocated for what I believed in. I made the decision. Um, and when you have, when, when, when a company gets large, it becomes more like a, a, a cruise ship than a speedboat. Um, and so changing the direction of a cruise ship versus changing the direction of a speedboat takes 100 times longer. Um, and it's very different for an entrepreneur who has a tendency to have a bias toward action and to act quickly. Uh, to try and move an organization with 300 employees versus an organization with three or 30 employees. Um, and so I learned a heck of a lot in how to lead, lead a number of people in organizational groups through a strategic shift. Um, and, but I mean, there are decisions like that. There's decisions to raise the $40 million from JMI Equity, which ultimately became my decision. Uh, decisions to you know, propose to the board that we go forward with the sale of the company. Um, you know, so th these are decisions that ultimately you're, you're, you, you make, um, you know, staring out your window in your office and it's, it's you making the final call. Is that how you make your decisions? Just quietly on your own? It's not a writing down process. It's not a, um, who I did an interview with an entrepreneur recently who was talking about doing the pros and cons, uh, to try to help make a decision up. Uh, you don't do that. It's just sitting there and thinking it through. Yeah. It's thinking it through what's feeling in your gut, what's right. It's probably thinking through the pros and cons. It's talking to a number of people. And then it's um, making a decision and going forward with it. Why, why is it so tough to offer a free version? It seems to me from the outside, you're an email business. Company, companies pay you to, reach their, uh, to use your software to reach their audiences via email and to get their audiences to sign up for an email, um, uh, for email contact. It seems pretty easy to say, hey, you know what? We're going to offer a free version. We'll just run it for people for a thousand or fewer, for lists of a thousand or fewer email addresses. Boom, let's get this done tomorrow and see what happens by Friday and then we'll adjust. Why isn't yeah. it that simple? And I see you smiling as I even describe this. It's like a fantasy land when you're a bigger company, but why? What happens at that point? Why can't that happen that easily? Well, um, imagine you had a company with um, 45 million in revenue. Um, and you know, 20% to make up a number of your revenue happen to be in that uh, range in which you're about to make free. So right? you give up 20% of your revenue. But once you've just once you've decided and have told the, the board, this is what I want to do, and they say, you know what, okay, Ryan, you're the boss, you have a vision here, we can see based on your analysis of this, how it could eventually help us in the future, do it. You can't just send out an email to the company saying, Guys in technology, any anyone who is this size customer from now on gets it free. Guys in, in advertising, please market that we're offering free. <laughs> You're smiling yeah. as I say it. And yeah, it's tell because, me why. Yeah, because because I think as an entrepreneur, that's what I would have thought as well. The reality is is that um, 
as a larger company, there are systems in place, things like um, accounting systems, billing systems that have to comply with uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and revenue recognition for gap accounting controls to ensure that you pass your audit, uh, things you don't think about. And so uh, you have to um, you know, redesign your entire couponing system. You have to figure out how to communicate with all the different types of customers that affects. So you have to redo your pricing form, things that you know, take three to five months of work to do and have to have the right proper planning in place. And so I think when you get beyond, I think the magic number is 150 employees, things become uh, a multiple, uh, things become challenging at a, at a multiple um, of the degree of difficulty that they were previously in order to drive change within an organization. That's what I came to this interview to learn. That's one of the big things that I came to learn. What are those bigger issues that that entrepreneurs face when their companies become as big as yours uh, did. And so you explained some of it. Now you still, within this infrastructure, you need to operate. You need to convince people. You need to help them get things done. How do you do it? How do you lead in that situation? Well, I think it, you got to talk about a job description of the entrepreneur versus the job description of the CEO. The job description of the entrepreneur is CEO, chief everything officer, right? You're in charge of the Janet taking out the trash. You're in charge of managing uh, the, the checkbook. You're in charge of getting customers, getting the product out, hiring people. You do everything in the first um, 12 to 18 months of a startup until you're at about a million dollars in annual revenue. Your job is everything, right? And then eventually you have a team. And then the magic thing happens when your team has a team. And then another magic thing happens when your team has a team who has a team. Um, and so I, it generally tends to be that when you get to a scale of about 50 employees, you need these wonderful things called processes and you need these other wonderful things called metrics. Um, and your job is, is becomes a leader, becomes the person who sets the big picture strategy and the key metrics for success. And then all your job is to see chief executive officer rather than the chief everything officer. The chief what officer versus the chief everything officer? And retain the senior team. It's to set the key performance indicators for the chief executive officer. Okay. Um, so it's, it's basically building the team, right? It's recruiting and building the team and maintaining the team. It's holding them accountable to results and setting the right KPIs for the company. Um, and it's raising funding. Make sure you have a strong balance sheet. Um, it's, it's owning and being accountable for the results of the business. Um, and, and it's culture um, and, and it's relations with the media and relations uh, with investors. That is the job of a chief executive officer um, as a leader, uh, as someone who inspires others. It's, it's not the job of the CEO to do everything. Um, and it is hard as an entrepreneur who is a detail-oriented uh, micromanager, at times we all are as an early stage entrepreneur, to step back and realize you have to delegate, you have to get the right people in place, and you will only scale beyond five or ten million in annual sales if you get a solid team behind you. Um, you mentioned uh, having processes and metrics. How did you create the processes and how did you share them with the company? Is there a procedure manual? I've heard other entrepreneurs talk about that. Is there a different way that you that you would lead through processes? Yeah, well I think each um, you have company-wide processes for things like payroll, uh, things like granting stock options, um, for things like um, you know employee policies type of thing. And certainly every company has an employee handbook generally. Um, it's good to have it on an intranet or a wiki so that it's editable and updatable. And uh, we had um, uh, a uh, corporate intranet. We used ADP for our payroll. Um, we had an HR system uh, with ADP. Um, and we co collaborated and communicated through an internal system um, on Salesforce called Chatter, um, and of course through email. And so um, over time, you establish accounting controls and processes, you establish HR controls and processes, and then you have processes for achieving your corporate objectives that your, your second tier, your, your senior leadership team puts in place um, to be able to achieve the results. And it's sort of up to them to create the processes in their departments. So what we do here at Mixergy is once this interview is done, I upload it to, to uh, using Cyberduck to Rackspace. Joe, the editor, downloads it. He has a how-to guide that's within our manual that shows him what, how to um, 
how to put it into ScreenFlow, how to edit within that, how to export it, how to post it on the website and so on. It's all organized that way. And that's what I've been hearing from some past interviewees that they've done. Did you do the same thing? Do you also create a similar collection of those how-to guides internally? Or was there more flexibility because you want people to think for themselves? It feels like I'm seeing, I'm hearing both things in interviews. Sure. Well, I think it all, you have all companies are a collection of people, products, and processes. Um, and oftentimes it's your processes that, that differentiate your company in addition to your people and your product. Um, and so we documented nearly everything. Um, I remember in year two of the company sitting down and personally writing the first employee handbook that documented all our processes. Eventually, um, you have to open source the process list and that's why we put it on a editable uh, corporate wiki um, where anyone could add to it and subtract from it. And then eventually the processes become departmentalized as you grow to another size of scale. Um, Sam Carpenter, who wrote the book Work the System about how to create these systems, said that you should also identify what your company stands for so that everyone else knows where these processes originate and how these processes should work. Did you do that? Do you, did you have a list of things that you stood for at Eye Contact? Well, we had originally a uh, list of 10 company values, and we thought you know, that we checked the box on that, but really we had failed. And we had failed because we didn't know what they were. Uh, and they were very vague and uh, abstract. And I even tried to say what they were as the CEO, and I could get to four. And so in 2009, we went through a process to come up with five company values we call Wow Me. And they are to wow the customer, operate with urgency, work without mediocrity, make a positive wake, and engage as an owner. Um, and I'll be able to tell you that in 50 years because it has an acronym that's memorable, that's pronounceable, and everyone in the company knew wow me um, and knew what our values were and could relate um, all the things that we did in the organization back to the core values of the organization. How do you come up with that as an entrepreneur? Here you are. This is creating this list of values could either be the most corporate thing you do that's a little too rigid and will won't even be remembered by the founder as the first list, or it could be something that you feel you're inspired by and that it allows you to create the, to create the future, to almost play God in business. You know, that's kind of what we're about. We're, we're creating something the way that, um, that writers might create the whole world in novels. We're creating it in, we're creating it in the real world. How do you, how do you do it right? How do you make it that inspiring? Do you yeah. sit, do you have a team that you work with on this? I'll tell you the process to get there. I'll tell you the exact way we did it. Um, but uh, first I'll say that every company needs to define in words its culture. You need to define in words your why statement. And you need to define in words your values. Um, and our culture was fun, creative, caring, hardworking. And those were the four, four adjectives that we applied to our culture. Uh, we... Um, in our why statement, our why statement was to make um, online communication easy for small and mid-sized businesses and nonprofits so that they could succeed and grow. Um, and then our culture, sorry, our values were wow me that I just shared with you. Um, and I think it's one of the first things you do when you get beyond a handful of people. When you get to 10 or 15 people, you need to define uh, the adjectives that describe your culture, and you need to take the time to write down the values. Now, what we did is we did it in year six of the business. Um, and so we already had a value statement, but it was too long. And so we got our entire senior team together, um, and we decided to brainstorm. We did this in one day with the help of a third-party consultant. Um, and we brainstormed a list of dozens of words that we felt described our culture. Um, and then we grouped them into similar words, and then narrowed them down to 10, and then we narrowed them down to five, and then we rearranged the, the we rearranged wordsmith to make them fit into an acronym. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all the other words that we had, we ensured in the description of each, each, each one that we included. Um, and that was an important part to make sure there was legitimacy across each department and that the senior team felt that they were the right values. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs in your situation would say, 
dude, leave me alone. I'm running this company that's growing at hyperspeed. I have way bigger issues than how to create this document that seems more like a Northrop Grumman requirement than you know an entrepreneurial uh, uh, obligation. And so they'd pass it off. Tony Shea of Zappos famously, he told me, and he said this everywhere, that he did it because at his previous company, things just went to pot. People didn't care about the business. He didn't care about coming into work because the culture just was was not corrupt, but it was it wasn't exciting. It was there was there was a problem with the culture. Did you have to wait till there was a problem in order to jump on this and say, yeah, we should define our values and we should explain what we stand for? Well, Tony, Tony Shea is, um, you know, I've met him a number of times in person and through his book, he's sort of been a uh, someone I look up to in the world of creating a great, amazing, inspiring, creative culture for a company. And I think at the end of the day, once you get beyond 10 or 15 employees, your success is entirely dependent on the success of your employee base and their inspiration to come into work and be motivated every day value and achieve. And you just can't create a great company if you have hundreds of people walking around that are not inspired to give it their all every single day. Um, and so we passionately cared about the purpose of our business. We passionately cared about the employees and our full team. We passionately cared about our community. And we passionately cared about our customer base that we served every day. And through that passion and through that emotion, through the emotional side of the balance sheet instead of the financial side of the balance sheet, we were able to create substantial assets that often could not be seen in, in you know, a simple uh, pro forma profit and loss statement. And so I believe that you should invest once you get beyond a handful of people um, in creating an amazing culture at your workplace. All right. I'm wondering what else, what don't I know to ask you about the second, the, the last stage of the business? What I mean is, well, maybe I could ask it this way. If you were to go back to the you that you were five years ago and say, here's what's coming up as we get really big, you should be prepared for these challenges. What would it be? What would you tell that you? Uh, two two really important things. One is um, hire a chief operating officer um, when you get to about 30 employees. Um, we, we never hired our, a COO at eye contact. And so I was not only a CEO that was the external facing CEO in charge of strategy and vision and fundraising and investor and media relations. I was also the internal CEO responsible for keeping the trains running on the track at the right time and doing the weekly operations meeting and managing the KPIs and managing the incentive comp. comp. And it became too much to do both at the same time well. And I find that I'm best as the product, marketing, external, strategic focused CEO. Um, and that I need, in order to succeed in business, a great right-hand person running the operations of the business on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I realized that, and, and probably about a year and a half ago, um, and never found the right person, was never able to really get on that right chief operating officer. And so if, if your focus is an external strategy person, get a chief operating officer on board who can take care of the day-to-day -day task of running the company while you focus on creating the next iteration. You know, really, uh, you know, after... Once you get to about $25 million in revenue, as a CEO, you need to be working on the thing that's going to get your next $25 million in revenue, not working on uh, what's going to happen next week or the week after. And so my rule of thumb for a CEO of a company larger than 100 employees is you should, be, you should rarely be working on anything that's going to affect the current month. If you're working on something that's going to affect the current month, you're working on the wrong thing. You need to be working on the things that are going to be affecting three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months from now. Um, and often, so the mistake I made, besides never hiring a COO, was we, are, we were in the business of email marketing until October 2011 when we became in the business of social media marketing. And that was our second big thing, and, and we got acquired six months later, and so we never really fully got into the business of social media marketing. However, I should have been looking for that opportunity for our next business line three or four years ago. If I would have got the right operations partner in place, that would have enabled me, instead of working on cross-functional ops, to be able to work on generating the next big revenue driver for the company. So you said two things. One is get the COO in. What was the other thing? Oh, it's, it's as, this, as the CEO, once you get to about $25 million in revenue, your job needs to be focused on working three to six months ahead at all times and recruiting the team and getting in place the next product 
that you're going to bring to market that enables you to grow well beyond where you're at today. Jason Cohen of uh, WP Engine said that I need to ask entrepreneurs more about the the ins- the, inse- the insecurities that go with being an entrepreneur. Specifically, he said, um, ask about the imposter syndrome, this feeling that everyone's counting on you to be great and you have to project this sense of confidence, but at the same time, you have insecurities like anyone else. Do you remember when you felt that? Yeah, you know, I think um, I'm a very self-confident person and um, I think that, that probably comes from my mom who, who taught me from a young age that I could achieve anything I set my mind to as long as I uh, as long as it was something that would do make a positive impact in the world and um, that I surround myself with amazing people. And so, you know, I think at times um, you can lose confidence, but at the end of the day, um, you often know your business better than anyone else. Um, and the best thing you can do is to make decisions confidently and surround yourself with great people. So, you know, I think I was fortunate to, to not be affected by that syndrome, uh, imposter syndrome as much. Uh, as others, but you you really do have to play a mental game with yourself to continually be confident in the face of challenging situations. What is that mental game? How do you play it? Well, I think um, um, I wish I knew. I wish I could describe it in a a repeatable format. at the end of the day, what you create in the world is a function of what you put in the thoughts in your head. Um, and individuals who put thoughts of worry and failure in their heads are the individuals who often do not make it and succeed. Individuals that have ambitious dreams and shoot for the stars often land on the treetops, they, as they say. And, and so having ambitious dreams and goals, right where we started this interview, um, and then surrounding yourself with people smarter than yourself, who are more experienced than yourself, to execute and get things done to achieve those ambitious dreams um, was what I did. And because I had ambitious goals in my head, thoughts from a relatively young age that I could build a successful company, that I could find great people to surround myself with, I figured out how to. Um, And so a lot of it is just mental positive psychology of thinking positively and knowing that you can achieve anything you set your mind to. Here's what's worked for me to do that. I recognize that at some point in my life, I was very aware and very focused on the things that could go wrong or the things that... Um, could embarrass me. And I would just have these scenarios play in my head about how, ooh, if I, if I lose this business, my friends from high school are going to laugh at me and my friends from elementary school are going to share links of my failure with each other. And those stories would just keep going. And I said, you know, that's why I'm being weak in conversations. That's why I can't express myself or take risks. And then I had to say, well, is that the truth? Well, I don't know if they're going to share it, and I don't know if I care about it, but I also know that there's that there's another truth, or there is a truth, which is that if I could make it, then here's the great things that I could do with the world, or here's the way that I can um, live out my dream and focus. And anyway, I just heightened my awareness of the things that I wanted and tried to shift my focus to those every time I worried about the things I didn't want to have happen. So if I caught myself saying, oof, I, if I go and do an interview with Ryan and I goof on camera, my friends could goof on me and then I'm going to be this guy who everyone in elementary school or from elementary school is emailing back and forth about. If I start to get carried away with that, I say, stop and focus on what are you trying to do? Oh yeah, how great would it be if you do an interview with Ryan where one person emails you five years later and says, because of that interview, I was I was a better entrepreneur. How great would it be if because of that interview, someone comes two years from now and says, I reached the same height as Ryan because I wore a wristband and the way that he talked about setting goals, I did it and look at how fast it worked. And I just keep trying to be aware of when my head goes to the negative space and shifting it back to the to the stuff that I want to focus on. Do you do anything like that? I, I just went on a long description of what I do. Life is too short for negative thoughts, and life is too short for negative people. And so I only surround myself with positive people and positive thoughts, and I I am an optimist. I think our world and our society has tremendously positive things ahead, and if you look at the data, we're progressing immensely as a human species toward amazing, important goals for ourselves as a society. And so I, I will always be an optimist, um, and I will always believe that 
if I find great people to surround myself with, are clear on the goals that I have in my life and the passions I have and work every day to pursue them, that I can achieve anything. And I know that anyone listening to this can achieve anything they set their mind to if they follow that same path. Well, you did it. I have the quotes here from our first interview of what you were going to do, and here you did it. What's next? What's the next big goal? What's the next big wristband? Well, I am passionate about creating jobs in the developing world. I'm passionate about being part of uh, ending extreme poverty in our lifetime. Um, I've been passionate about that for probably the last decade. Um, I still wear that white uh, wristband that says Make Poverty History from 2005 from the One Campaign. I've worn it now for about five or six years. Um, and to me, um, I went to Africa in 2008, to Kenya and Uganda for the first time. Since then, I've started investing as an angel investor in companies in, in Nairobi and Kampala. What I plan to do with the next uh, 25 years at least um, is to become a great venture capitalist and a great private equity investor in companies in co countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Zambia, South Africa, uh, and really sub-Saharan and middle Africa. Um, and I think through investing and providing capital to growing businesses, you can often make a huge positive impact and create long-term sustainable economic growth. So that's my passion, and, and I hope to see a world created in which every human being has access to basic human needs of food, water, and shelter. And I think we'll get there in the next 20 or 30 years. And just as I have a part of your transcript where you said what you were going to do with eye contact uh, by 2012 and you did it, I'm hoping to have you back on here when you achieve that to talk about how you did it. I want to ask you one final question. But first, let me say to the audience that if if you buy into this uh, this worldview where ed that says education helps, it says that it's important to think about how to build your business, that it's important to learn about how to do it. If when Ryan earlier talked about reading books and being shaped by them and then acting on them, if this is your worldview, I hope you join us at MixergyPremium.com where I invite proven entrepreneurs to turn on their computer screens and teach just one thing that they do exceptionally well and that they think other entrepreneurs need to learn. And we've done this with copywriting, this we've done this with sales, we've done this with customer development all with proven entrepreneurs turn on their computer screen and spend about an hour focusing on making sure that you can do this and if you look in the comments we started turning comments on encouraging comments and turning them on in these courses you'll see that there are people who've seen results from this and they'll share their results and uh, hopefully in time we can get some people who also will be open about their failures from the courses because I'm not looking to just have those comments be um, uh uh, a place to show off. I'm looking for them to be a place where we can help each other build our businesses. So if this is your worldview, go to Mixergy Premium. If you're already a member, you get access to all those courses. If you're not a member, I hope you join us. In addition to giving you all that good stuff, it also gives everyone else um, access to Mixergy interviews. Joe, who edits them, uh, is actually being paid not by me, but now being paid by premium members. And the same thing for um, Ari Saint, who put together this great outline uh, and great research on this interview, and the whole operation here is functioning thanks to you guys who sign up to and are members of MixergyPremium.com. All right, uh, final question is this: If you could give us, if you could give us one takeaway, if people are overwhelmed by everything we've talked about up until now, um, but still want to do something, still want to develop one positive habit, maybe based on what 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 uh, based on your experience. What, what habit would you recommend, would you encourage us to develop in ourselves? I think the most important thing for anyone out there, entrepreneur or not, is to follow your passion every single day and find a way where you're creating value for other people, creating a positive impact in the world, um, and making a difference. And if you are, can align what you love to do with what you do every day, you will make way more money than you can imagine today if you simply work how hard at it and surround yourself with amazing people. That's a great place to leave it. I'm going to say, before I say thank you, I'll say the reason that I was so nervous about this interview in the beginning is because, Ryan, you're the kind of entrepreneur that I want to do Mixergy with and for. I don't want it to be about the get rich quick. I don't want it to be about... Um, I want it to be about your kind of entrepreneurship. You're having a deep impact on the world. Even when I told my wife on Skype that you were coming on here, she said, oh, he's the guy with the B Corporation. He's the person who, and then she started on Skype telling me all the things that she admired about you. And I could do the same thing with her, which is to say that 
you have this vision for doing something big. You have this vision for helping people and you just keep doing it every day and achieving it every day. And I'm really just so proud that I have um, that I have an opportunity here to talk to you. And I'm so proud that this is the kind of site where we can have the, the hour long conversation that you and I had. And so beyond thanking you for just doing this interview, I want to thank you for just being out there and being an inspiration. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Andrew. All right. And thank you all for watching. We couldn't do this without you. And I'm really glad that there are people out there who care about this stuff as much as I do. It makes me feel maybe this is what keeps me from feeling lonely, knowing that you guys are out there and care about these kinds of questions the way that I do. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you all for watching.